This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with science writer Gary Taubes his recent work, The Case Against Sugar. Gary, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you for having me. Mr. Taubes' bio is posted on the podcast website. I should note he is also the author of The Way We Get Fat and Good Calories, Bad Calories. On background, we well know a substantial percent of Americans suffer from obesity. According to the CDC, 38% of adult women and 34% of adult men. We know, too, obesity is considered, after tobacco, the second leading cause of preventable death. Obesity and related metabolic syndrome, defined as having a large waistline, hypertension, high triglyceride levels, and high fasting blood sugar, is associated with cancer, diabetes, heart disease, and stroke, amongst other serious and fatal illnesses. For decades, expert consensus opinion has been, and largely continues to be, that we simply consume too many calories, and that we need to reduce our consumption of these excess calories, particularly calories from fatty foods. In the case against sugar, Mr. Taubes presents a compelling argument that sugar, for example, high fructose corn syrup, amongst others, are the quote-unquote fundamental causes of diabetes and obesity, using the same simple concept of causality that we employ when we say cigarette smoking causes lung cancer. So with that as background or introduction, uh, let me begin, Gary, by asking you about the effects uh, sugar consumption has on human physiology, since that seems to be the crux of the matter. Specifically, what causes elevated levels of insulin or hyperinsulemia uh, and insulin resistance? Okay, so I'm going to backtrack briefly on that just to say that in this book, what I'm trying to do ultimately is explain a simple and tragic observation, which is that in populations throughout the world that transition to a Western diet from whatever their trend, uh, uh, traditional diets are, they eventually manifest epidemics of obesity and diabetes. And numbers are, as I said, tragic and striking. Uh, in the U.S., from the late 19th century onward, you see estimates of diabetes originally in the population at around uh, 1 in 3,000. And by today, according to the CDC, we're looking at 1 in 11 Americans with this disease. Uh, in some populations, like Native American populations, First Nations people, uh, peoples in Canada, you have relatively reliable surveys suggesting that the disease is uh, virtually non-existent as late as the 1930s. And then by the 1960s, you have some populations with uh, one in four adults or even one in two adults with this disease. So what we want to do is explain those epidemics. Clearly, it's something having to do with the Western diet and lifestyle, as you said. Um, 
the conventional thinking is we just make too many calories available and then people become sedentary, so you have this overconsumption of calories problem. Uh, the argument I make in my book is that sugar is was always considered a prime suspect in these epidemics, um, and it should still be a prime suspect. It's always, uh, to use a criminal justice metaphor, it's always at the scene of the crime when these epidemics occur. And then the argument I'm making in this book is that, well, as we know, type 2 diabetes is fundamentally a disorder of uh, insulin resistance, where our, our cells become resistant to the action of insulin, and that in turn requires the pancreas to secrete more insulin to deal with the carbohydrate load in the diet, and uh, you end up with uh, this hyperinsulinemia. And I would say there's a pretty good consensus in the research community that studies insulin resistance, that it begins with insulin resistance in the liver, and it's highly associated with the uh, excess accumulation of fat in liver cells, particularly a type of fat or, uh, known as diacylglycerol. And the sugars we're talking about, beet sugar and cane sugar and high fructose corn syrup, are roughly 50-50 uh, compositions of the simple carbohydrate glucose and the simple carb fructose. It's fructose that makes these sugars sweet. Fructose, uh, all these sugars, well, uh, sucrose and fructose are found in lower doses in fruit, and the fructose is what makes the fruit sweet. And the fructose happens to be metabolized in the liver, and it's been shown in experiments since the 1980s that when the liver has to deal with relatively high doses of fructose, it does so by converting it to fat. And so the argument I'm making is that not only is sugar at the scene of the crime uh, in population-wide uh, data, it's at the scene of the crime in the body, and it's uh, got the gun necessary to commit the crime. What we don't have is uh, definitive evidence that it's the cause. And so I'm arguing that it should be the prime suspect. It's always been the prime suspect and we should treat it as the prime suspect until we have really good evidence to suggest otherwise. Thank you. So just to be clear, relative to uh, insulin production, insulin resistance, your argument is that this hyperinsulemia is causing both obesity and diabetes. Um, that is, the obese had, have high blood sugar and high insulin levels. Yes, well, that was one of the revelations in the late, uh, the, excuse me, the early 1960s. Once uh, we had a technology available to allow us to measure hormone levels in the bloodstream, the radioimmunoassay uh, developed by Rosalind Yallow and Solomon Burson, which later won Yallow the Nobel Prize. Uh, until then, it was always assumed that insulin was a, that all diabetes was an insulin deficiency disease. And then once we could measure insulin levels accurately, it became clear that both type 2 diabetes and obesity were associated with both elevated levels of blood sugar and elevated levels of insulin, which implied that the insulin wasn't doing its job in controlling blood sugar. Uh, one of the revelations in the 1960s, that's now textbook endocrinology and textbook biochemistry, 
is that insulin, another job insulin does is basically uh, regulate the accumulation of fat and fat cells. So when insulin, ele- insulin levels are elevated, we store calories as fat. When insulin decreases below a threshold, we mo- mobilize that those calories and we oxidize fatty acids for fuel. So, yes, in my earlier works, I've argued that elevated levels of insulin should be seen as the, um, again, the prime suspect for for driving obesity itself, for driving the excess fat accumulation that obesity is. And as such, sugar would be a, a or the primary cause for that, too, if it's what's triggering the initial insulin resistance. Okay, so sugar as the primary or root cause, but throughout your book, the problem is that you note over and again, the general consensus is that, quote-unquote, a calorie is a calorie. And in fact, uh, you published in January in the New York Times an editorial where you said, to argue that your body responds to everything you eat the exact same way is almost inconceivably naive. Um, so a calorie is... Uh, all calories are not the same. Can you explain? Yeah, and that's, and again, every diabetic knows this and every diabetologist knows this. One of the, probably the primary thing that has made my work so controversial is I had the opportunity, and I, I, to date I'm pretty much the only one who's ever done this, to... Uh, in effect, document the history of obesity and diabetes research going back to the 19th century. And a point that I'm a little embarrassed I didn't make in my earlier books is uh, in any science, what we think we know is determined by the technologies we have available to measure uh, whatever it is we're studying. And if you look at the early history of nutrition from the 1860s through the 1920s, all of nutrition science effectively came down to measuring the calories in uh, foods and the calories we expend in daily living. Uh, This was spurred in the late 1860s by the invention by German researchers of uh, room-sized devices called calorimeters that could measure the energy expended by humans or dogs, which they often used as their subjects. Um, so nutrition science was basically calories in versus calories out and then vitamin and mineral deficiencies, which you could also study in animal models, and then you could uh, compare what you learned in the animal models to deficiency diseases in humans. And then the new nutrition came around in the 1920s and 30s, which was the establishment that various uh, of these deficiency diseases like pellagra and beriberi were caused by specific absences of vitamins, and they could be cured by replacing those vitamins. Out of that period, we derived this theory that obesity was an energy balance disorder because that's all we were measuring and that the only relevant uh, variable in whether or not a food causes obesity was its caloric content. And one of the points I make is this all predated, in effect, virtually all of the science of endocrinology, uh, which begins in a really significant way in 1921 with the discovery of insulin and then growth hormone and the beginning of the understanding of uh, how uh, various uh, 
hormonal secretions influence body composition and body functions in a very profound way. And so this idea that it was all about calories, which was a, an American idea, it wasn't how the Germans and Austrians who had pioneered all the, uh, how they thought about it, and these Germans and Austrians had pioneered all the relevant fields of nutrition and um, of medical science, uh, nutrition, metabolism, genetics, and endocrinology, and they had come to the conclusion by the late 30s that obesity had to be a hormonal regulatory disorder. I mean, an easy way to think about it is if you see somebody walking down the street or a physician sees someone walking down the street who's eight feet tall, they don't care if they weigh, if the fellow weighs 300 pounds, they don't care how much he's eating and exercise, they know he's been in positive energy balance his whole life. What they're concerned about is why this fellow has been over-secreting growth hormone and whether he's still over-secreting growth hormone because if he is, you've got to throw him in an MRI, identify that tumor that's assuredly in his pituitary gland and get it out. Um, if you see somebody walking down the street, an adult who's only four feet tall, you don't care about whether or not how much they eat or exercise. You don't care about even how much they weigh. You assume that this person is either growth hormone deficient or growth hormone receptor deficient or defective. Um, somehow, again, in, in Nutrition, because of this early thinking and obesity research, all we cared about is the caloric content. And like I said, it wasn't until the 1960s that you could really study the influence of different foods on the hormonal milieu that dictates whether your fat cells are going to take up too much fat. So um, my books and my op-eds and this book is another way of discussing how we made what I consider this almost, again, incomprehensible mistake to simplify the physiology of obesity down to this sort of crazy all about just how much you eat and exercise or how fast your metabolic rate is and not attending to the endocrinological enzymatic factors that you would be concerned about on any other growth defect in the human body, including cancer. So th thanks for the for the weaving in the history or the evolution of this uh, subject, because I do want to go to bring us up to the 1970s. And in 1977, the FDA looked at whether sugar was considered, and for DC policy folks, they're familiar with this acronym GRASS, generally recognized, uh, recognized as safe. So in 1977, the FDA put out a grass report on sugar, and what did it find? Well, again, it concluded that it indeed was generally recognized as safe, which it was. Um, you know, in the 1960s, we became focused on this idea that dietary fat causes heart disease. And while there were very influential researchers, John Yudkin in the UK, who founded the first dedicated nutrition department in Europe, uh, John Bayer in the US, who was the most influential US nutritionist, who were arguing that sugar was a very likely cause of diabetes, if nothing else, and probably heart disease, uh, the public health community, the heart disease community, the epidemiologists were so focused on this idea that dietary fat was the cause, that sugar was assumed to be benign because it wasn't fat and it could not raise cholesterol, and we also had this hypothesis that heart disease was 
caused by the excess of cholesterol in the blood, in effect clogging the arteries. We knew that cholesterol was a major component of atherosclerotic plaques. So when the FDA released its GRASS report, and it was influenced uh, significantly by a report that had been funded by the sugar industry, as I discuss in my book, uh, in which they merely hired very influential uh, researchers led by Fred Stair, who was the founder and director of the Harvard uh, Nutrition Department, to argue that, in effect, dietary fat was the problem, and the evidence against sugar wasn't enough to take take it seriously. So the FDA followed along with what was the uh, medical and public health and, uh, momentum of the day, which was to, in effect, get the entire country and eventually the world on a low-fat, low-saturated fat diet. And the process, one unintended consequence, was to assume that sugar was benign and that, again, to continue to repeat this mantra that a calorie is And this 77 report, as you note in the book, stated the link between sugar and diabetes, quote-unquote, had no plausible evidence. And then again in 1986, the FDA said something similar, quote-unquote, no conclusive evidence. You mentioned the sugar industry. So let me go to its role, which is um, a running theme in your book, Uh, the sugar industry or big sugar, the sugar association. I think I saw the phrase merchants of death. Uh, what's their role been uh, in this case, not against, but this case for sugar? Yeah, well, again, I, I, you saw the phrase merchants of doubt. I, was, I, I probably didn't use it. They're often, the sugar industry has been accused of playing by the tobacco industry playbook. That's an easy argument to make, and it's based on research of uh, uh, UC San Francisco uh Research named Kristen Kearns, who I worked with in the past to write a Mother Jones article, and her work is discussed in my book. And so, again, you've got the sugar industry beginning in the 1950s with a public relations campaign, an advertising campaign, arguing that there's no such thing as um, as a fattening food because a calorie is a calorie, so it doesn't matter where you get your excess calories from, all foods are equal. And then in the 1960s, the sugar industry spends a lot of uh, effort and a significant amount of money uh, basically generating research that ends up condemning cyclamates as carcinogens and getting artificial sweeteners tainted with this uh, paint they still have today that they're even worse for us than sugar. And then in the 1970s, pushing this argument that fat is the problem. And when the FDA reports that there's no conclusive evidence that sugar is a is a harmful substance, the sugar industry translates that in a series of advertising campaigns into this idea that uh, no conclusive evidence is equated with no evidence. It's sort of an acquittal is equated with proof that they didn't commit the crime, whereas the FDA was in effect saying um, they didn't have enough evidence to convict. So this has been the constant theme um, because of the sugar industry influence. Uh, research on sugar as a harmful substance was pretty much shut down for 20 or 25 years. Although 
as I note in the book, it came back again with our, as more and more researchers began to pay attention to this idea that heart disease is not caused by elevated cholesterol or elevated LDL cholesterol, but is associated with this whole cluster of metabolic abnormalities that we now call um, metabolic syndrome. And you uh, enumerated them, uh, you know, increased waist circumference, low HDL cholesterol, the good cholesterol, high triglycerides, glucose intolerance, high blood pressure. You could probably add, you know, uh, high levels of inflammation, uh, <clears throat> elevated uric acid. And in the beginning in the 90s, researchers were trying to figure out how to create animal models of metabolic syndrome, and they realized that the easiest way to do it is to feed the animals sugar. So you end up getting researchers studying the effect of sugar on metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance, not because they think sugar is harmful, but because they're studying metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance and want an animal model. Thank you. So let me go to this issue of scientific proof. You note later in the book, the requirements of a public health policy and the requirements of good science can be mutually exclusive. Uh, As I noted in the opening, and per your comment about uh, being present at the scene of the crime but not being found guilty, what's possible, if anything, to get uh, scientific proof? Because you do say towards the conclusion of the volume as well uh, that the amount of money, the time it would take to design these studies is likely either unaffordable or impossible. Yeah, and again, uh, I may have spoken too soon in my own book, um, but there's a lot of misconceptions here. And that line about science being a destabilizing effect in public policy comes out of the very first investigation I ever did as as an investigative journalist in this area, which was into this question of whether or not salt caused high blood pressure. Turns out to be an extremely vitriolic controversy, and the evidence that we should be eating low-salt diets is... um, in my mind, uh, uh, unable to support uh, the public health recommendations. And while I was doing that that investigation, I interviewed about 80, 85 uh, sources, public health administrators, researchers for that one story, and that was a line that was given to me by a former FDA administrator who just pointed out that in, in public health, uh, as in medicine, you, you have, you're trying to deal with... Um, uh, potentially tragic situations. The idea is, you know, when, when I'm talking about diabetes and obesity epidemics, we're talking about diseases that are that today tens of millions of Americans suffer from, and you want to be able to act quickly to prevent these epidemics, to, to cure these epidemics, and so you make decisions quickly based on premature evidence. You're not willing to wait for what researchers would describe to me as definitive scientific evidence. They often say, we don't have time to to cross the T's and dot the I's because people are dying out there, and so we have to act. The very first time the USDA got involved in giving dietary guidelines, when the USDA administrator knew there was a huge controversy over the question of whether or not fat caused heart disease, she said, look, we have people dying out there. We have to, I have to feed my family. We want to be able to give advice. What's your best sense of the, of the, the data? You know, tell us what you think is true. And all of science is about not telling what we think is true. It's about 
not fooling ourselves. So when scientists, good scientists, hear a sentence like, we don't have time to cross the T's and dot the I's, what they translate it into is, we don't have time to know whether what we think is true is right or not. And so we are speculating, and we are going to give people our speculation, and as such, what I would recommend, and I'll then tell you why it's not going to work, is you have to tell people that you're speculating. That's why I call my book The Case Against Sugar instead of something like Sugar is Toxic, because all I can do is give you my best case, my best argument, and then say, I think it's right. I don't know if it's right. And I wish, I, I think it's sufficiently likely to be right that it should be uh, rigorously tested. Um, the problem is if you give public health advice and you say we should all go on a low-fat diet, but we're not sure that's the right thing to do, you're not going to get a lot of people mm -hmm. to follow your advice. And this was the other problem that I've discussed in all my work and my, my two initial investigations for science. So what the public health community does is they start off by saying, as the USDA administrator did, I just want to know the best sense of the data. And if your sense of the data changes, we'll change our opinion. But then you end up communicating the best sense of the data as though it's, it's, it's a fact of life written on stone tablets passed down from the mountaintop, because if you don't, nobody's going to follow the advice. And what you're trying to do is get the American public en masse to follow your advice. And then as you communicate that advice in more and more certain terms, not only do you begin to forget yourself that it's just speculation and based on untested assumptions, but you build up a barrier to ever admitting you were wrong because once a public health authority or medical organization says, oh, sorry, we were wrong about that, we're now changing advice, they lose their credibility. And there's no reason for people to follow their advice from then on in because people will naturally be thinking, well, if you were wrong once, maybe you're wrong now. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. part of the irony in all this is one of the arguments against the case I'm making in my book is that we were wrong about dietary fat, therefore we're wrong about all single nutrient explanations. And we're wrong about sugar also, and the reason we know we're wrong, we were wrong about dietary fat is in large part due to my work. <laughs> and what I'm saying is, you know, again, it's as though a crime is committed just because we convicted the wrong um, suspect, just because we indicted the wrong suspect the first time around doesn't mean there's not another single suspect committing mm -hmm. the crime. It doesn't mean it has to be 50 different things, the, 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 the term you often hear in this field is obesity and diabetes are multifactorial complex disorders, which to me is the medical research community saying, gosh, guys, we don't know, we give up, and let's blame it on everything. So let me, um, you discuss several related or other related issues here. You have a chapter on, on tobacco and sugar, you have a chapter on, on prevalence amongst the Pima Indians in Arizona. Uh, there's some discussion through the book on whether sugar is addictive or not. But let me ask as a going out question, how much sugar do we currently consume? That seems to be debated. And relative to what your recommendation would be, how much is too much or how much sugar can we tolerate? Okay, so um, the answer to your first question is it is 
controversial how much sugar we currently consume, and in part because of the actions of the sugar industry. So what the USDA can measure accurately is how much sugar, cane and beet sugar, high fructose corn syrup, is made available to the American public. So how much is produced, how much is imported, you know, minus how much is exported. And then they can estimate how much is thrown out. But now uh, relatively reliable data that can be used to document trends is becoming unreliable as soon as you start making assumptions that you can't measure and you start losing the ability to document trends with this unreliable number because you don't know how that has changed historically. So what we can say is we consume a hell of a lot more sugar than we did in the past. If you use the food availability data, in the beginning of the 1900s, which is fairly accurate because we track it for a lot of different reasons, including the fact that sugar is taxed and sugar imports are, have to, you know, are taxed. Um, so various government agencies track these numbers. If you use the sugar availability number, in the first decade of the 19th century, we were probably consuming about five pounds per person per capita. By 1900, that had increased by a factor of 15 to 20. And by 1999, when the consumption of these sugars peaked, we were consuming over, we were, the food industry was making available over 150 pounds of sugar per capita. So you can see from the food availability numbers that the increase has been roughly a factor of 30 in 200 years. Now, mm -hmm. how much is too much? So there's a couple of issues there. First of all, Clearly, some people can tolerate a lot of sugar in their diet, and some people can't because, you know, just like cigarettes, we have people who consume significant amount of sugars and live to be 95. This is what I mean when I make the metaphor, the analogy to cigarettes and causality. We know that only one in ten smokers will get lung cancer, but something like 85 to 90 percent of people who get lung cancer do so and are smokers, so we assume that smoking causes lung cancer. Um, clearly, some people can smoke and will never get lung cancer. Clearly, some people can eat a lot of sugar. Um, you know, there was a, an estimate done by a South African uh, diabetes specialist in the 1950s looking at populations around the world and he said it seems that when populations cross the 70 pounds of sugar per capita availability number they start to manifest diabetes epidemics and that to me wasn't a bad estimate but even then it doesn't mean that some people didn't get diabetes when they were only consuming 30 pounds per capita mm -hmm. You know, 30 pounds, and some people might not get it until they're, you know, might never get it. So you could say on a population level, and it's interesting that 70 pounds per capita of availability is roughly equivalent to the 40 pounds per capita consumption that the FDA estimated in 1977, well, 1986, would be generally recognized as safe. So if we got the population down below that level, I would expect the diabetes and obesity epidemics to, to plateau within a few years, although a few years could still be 10 or 15 or 20 because of the issue I discussed in that PEMA 
the Indian chapter, which is, so it's tricky. The other aspect here that's far more difficult than people say when they, you know, the, again, the general consensus today is that sugar is empty calories and so we should eat in moderation. Lean people are always telling us we should eat sugar in moderation because they can eat sugar in moderation. But people are predisposed to be obese or diabetic, um, and now we're talking about roughly a half to, if we throw in overweight, two-thirds of the American public mm-hmm. uh, might not be able to consume sugar in moderation without triggering this the hormonal milieu that pushes them towards excess fat accumulation and diabetes. Um, and if sugar is addictive, well, you have a problem. What does it mean to tell a smoker... I mean, clearly there's a level at which you could smoke cigarettes and not get lung cancer, but we don't say too much smoking causes lung cancer or smoking too many cigarettes causes lung cancer. We just say smoking causes lung cancer. The same would be true, and this is what I would hope the place, the point I hope we would get to. If it's true, as I argue, that sugar is a trigger of obesity and diabetes, then you don't say too much sugar causes obesity and too much sugar causes diabetes. You say sugar causes it, and now you leave it up to the population to figure out what to do about it. As I argue in the book and in my writing, uh, physicians never tell smokers to smoke in moderation. When they have a patient who's a cigarette smoker, the, what they tell them is cigarette smoking causes lung cancer, heart disease, emphysema, and then they strongly counsel that the smoker quit. And smokers can't imagine living without cigarettes any more than most of us can imagine living without sugar. Um, all that said, as a journalist, one of the joys of being a journalist is we get to critique conventional thinking, we get to do investigations, point out what the problems are, point out who's responsible, but we don't actually have to provide solutions because solutions are arguably the far harder part of the job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Well, the other uh, uh, variable in all this is the point that you make well taken that uh, you refer to sugar as uh, similar to tobacco, not an acute possibly, but a chronic toxin. So it may not be the annual consumption. It may be the amount of consumption over uh, multiple decades. That well, and that's the point. And you never know at which point you, you're attempting to smoke in moderation or attempting to consume sugar in moderation has now become too much. Tip the balance, correct, yes. Yeah, so, and as a parent, again, I happen to, the two things that really influenced my writing of this book that I couldn't avoid is, one, I'm the parent of two adolescent boys, and two, I used to be a cigarette smoker. So I know what it is to battle an addiction, and I know what it is to get over an addiction and not miss the item of your addiction one iota. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the the being a parent issue. Um, once, if I believe that sugar causes diabetes and heart disease and obesity, and I believe that the evidence is it's compelling to me, what do I do about feeding my kids? How does this concept of consuming sugar in moderation now translate to my children? 
and clearly because I don't want to burden them with a parent, a father who's a food zealot any more than they are by definition, I make decisions to allow them to consume it in moderation. Clearly they will do it out of moderation when I'm not around, (laughs) but they understand what I think. They understand, you know, we, we talk about it and, you know, you sort of do the best you can. I don't know how else to phrase it, but I'm not in this food culture. I cannot keep them from consuming far more sugar than their great, 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 grandfathers would have consumed when they were kids. Yes, absolutely. So that, Gary, uh, I appreciate this discussion generally. Again, a compelling argument, the case against sugar, but without our time boundaries. So thank you for this discussion. Well, again, thank you for your interest. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, To see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.